right. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Renee. I'm, What's happening today? I'm excited about today. I am too. Hey, everybody. Again, we skipped that part, but I know. we do it all I'm the Bruce, time. This is Renee, and we are still here. Welcome to our podcast, everyone. Renee, tell me why you're so excited today. Well, <laughs> do you want to say other than you get to do a podcast? I with know. Me. I, well, always. <laughs> I'm always excited about that. I'm excited about our guest today. We heard about him. We heard a little bit, like a little snippet of his story when we were at Angela Stanton King's live studio audience for her show, The Ask, Ask Show. show. He was, he was a guest on there. And just a little bit that I got to hear, we were like, we have got to have him on our podcast. I feel like you should tell everyone who, who's our guest and who's our guest on it. Yeah, we have Stet Frazier with us, everybody. I will not get into Stet's story. I'll let you divulge that information. What I thought was so cool with you is that when I saw you on stage with her, Angela Stant King, I could see just just your energy and your, like your happiness and your eyes and your smile. And I know it sounds kind of maybe weird from me to you, but it, it was, it was compelling. And I was like, this guy really, I just want to know more about him and kind of figure out how he is in this place, knowing your story again, just welcome. Thanks for joining us here. Welcome. Thank you both uh, for giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast. Uh, I'm grateful. And I'm honored to be here with you today. Um, yes, my story is a story that I share because I feel what particularly what's going on in the African-American community with me being a, a former drug dealer, dealing drugs and young men was looking up to me. Some, I was gone for 25 years, uh, first and foremost, excuse me. I was born and raised in Camilla, Georgia. I was raised in the household with five other siblings. My brothers and sisters all have college degrees, they in corporate America, or they principals or something, I will be considered the black sheep. I'm the one that literally took the chances. You know, I don't make excuses for it, did what I felt I wanted to do, and I had to pay a dear price for it. You know, I was the drug dealer in Mitchell County area. In 1994, the federal government indicted me. Although I was a first-time nonviolent offender, I didn't have a record, and I was not aware of the crack cocaine disparity that exists and that sentence African-Americans 100 times more harsh than those of with powder cocaine. And like I share with the young people when I go into the schools, even though I was not aware of that disparity, the point is I was a drug dealer. And so in being that, even though they got a case, they got case law that say ignorance to the law ain't no excuse. So although I was ignorant to the law, there was no excuse that the point is that I was a drug dealer. I was a first-time nonviolent offender, and I received life imprisonment. In the federal system, life imprisonment means that you die. If nothing happens, you die. You don't do 35 or 40 years. In 1986, the federal uh, sentencing guideline that came about under the Anti-Drug Abuse Act abolished federal parole. So if you receive life in federal prison, that is life. And I was in sentenced to life in 1995. I was incarcerated in 94. And although I was a first-time nonviolent offender, that law required me, according to me being considered as a leader, me testifying in my own case, they came back to charge me with perjury because once the jury find you guilty, then that means they considered that you lied in the court. And then those was enhancements that required me to receive life. And back then, a federal judge's hands was binding. It wasn't the fight of whether he wanted to give you life or not. The federal sentencing guideline are 
tables that everyone, no matter if you was Michael Vick, you was Martha Stewart, whoever, when you're in the federal system, those guidelines apply to you. It's not like the state system or the state of Georgia, the state of Florida. They have certain laws that the state of Georgia, the state of Florida, with the federal government, everything you equal. And every, it applies to all equal. So I received a life sentence. I was in federal prison for 25 years. Throughout my time of being incarcerated, I would set up programs and I constantly worked. In fact, when the judge granted me immediate release in 1995, he called my record impeccable. And he called it impeccable because I was one that was doing fundraisers for society, helping. I was setting up programs like the quality of life that dealt with self-development, self-analysis, self-correction. And I would work with young people because I didn't have a bitter spirit that I was saying, okay, because I don't have a life, I have a life center. I wanted the young people to go out better than what they came in because I came in at 26 years of age. And so I would work with them and that was my record. You know, like I tell people, I made the best of my stay. I never got caught up in playing, learning how to play chess, learning how to play dominoes. All I did was work and try to better my life that when I returned back to society, I wouldn't be one that would be in the recidivist state that comes back and make excuses. I don't believe in excuses. I never made excuses when I was incarcerated. I just wanted to make the best of my stay because I was willing to pay the price of me being a drug dealer. And by the grace of God, President Donald Trump in 2018, what he did was something that no other president did. In fact, President Trump is a person that they really don't share everything that's really going on in the federal system. It's in the changes that's going about is based on President Donald Trump. And he took President Obama's bill that removed the crack cocaine disparity from being 100 to one, meaning they would send as African-Americans 100 times more harsh than those with powder cocaine. When President Obama passed this bill August 3rd, 2010, he did not include those of us that was already in federal prison. Had he included us, I would have walked out of prison in 2010, but he didn't include those of us. President Donald Trump took President Obama's bill and made it to apply to those of us that was already incarcerated, meaning that I got time served because I wouldn't have received the life sentence on the 18 to one ratio. And when he applied it to those I cases, I received a letter from the judge saying that I was probably qualified. And it was clear that I was most likely gonna be released. So prior to me getting released, I had sent the judge a letter and I sent a letter to the lawyer. And this letter had requested to the judge, should he grant me immediate release, I was asking to stay in federal prison 10 additional days. And I said to the judge that I don't want you to believe that I'm crazy or insane. I said, but I do programs in him. I said, I would like to wrap the programs up. I'm asking for 10 additional days, should you grant me immediate release? Well, that was the only thing that the federal government agreed to. They told the judge <laughs> that I should stay in prison 10 more days. And the judge granted me immediate release July 24. And he granted the 10 additional days, which required me to be released August 3rd. But because August 3rd, 2019 fell on a Saturday, I was released August 2nd, 2019. And I'm grateful for President Donald Trump because had not just me, it's thousands of us. When I say thousands, it's thousands. In fact, a few months ago, a few thousands walked out of prison again. And all this is due to President Donald Trump that wow. they don't 
share with society. No yeah. other president since the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act came about has did sentencing reform and prison reform better than Donald Trump. Wow. And wow. that's something that they keep down in society. They don't know, we know. And like I tell them, I'm grateful to God that President Trump was in the position because it gave me another chance at life, you know, and gave thousands more another chance at life and everything. Oh, you got out, you got another chance at life. Like, what are you doing now? Like, what's, what's your life look like today? Well, my life looked like today. I still go in, I go in schools, but they, since they didn't release the restriction on COVID, I'm about to start by going in. Uh, in fact, I'll be going to Augusta, Georgia probably for the next two to three weeks to an alternative school to speak to some young guys, young teenagers that's been troubled. I started by going into schools. I worked the Boys and Girls Club. I helped participate. It's called, it's law enforcement in the Mitch County area, Operation Turnaround. And Operation Turnaround is dealing with gang affiliation, drugs, and I speak and help uh, work with those, uh, the law enforcement as well, to try to help young men and I go into schools. Um, as for my business, I'm an independent contractor. And I'm an independent contractor where I get secure contracts that's dealing with these corporations that's building solar fields throughout the United States. Wow. Uh, right now, I have, a, in fact, while we're talking, I just want a second contract. And this contract is a five-year contract. And these contracts are um, mega dollars. <laughs> yeah. Good. And uh, I'm in the second year of my first contract. I'm starting the second year of my first contract. That's a five-year contract. And by my work and everything that I was able to do with the first job and contract, the other company, they reached out to me. And so when I bid against these corporations that money extends much further than mine, mm -hmm. but I'm on the ground and I'm able to quote certain language and I got expertise in certain things that I learned by actually being in trial and error on the ground. So I just won a second contract yesterday. And this going and all of it is in the Mitch County area. And they, these are huge corporations that I'm winning these contracts with. This contract that I wanted to secure me another five-year deal. And nice. uh, they, awesome. the contracts are very lucrative. You know, they're very beneficial. Yeah. Very so are those all in, just in Georgia or are they all nationwide? They're, or they're Everywhere. They all throughout the United States. It's just that Georgia, my area, I put in bids like it's another area I be putting in one again. And my business is constantly expanding. And yeah. I bring more of my family members actually in there to work with me. And I have, at the moment, I have probably 15 employees. Cool. That's awesome. And, so these and are I, these are actually solar fields. like These are solar places. fields. I, I maintain and manage the what they call vegetation. Vegetation is the grass. Yeah. I maintain it. And then also whatever needs going on, the civil work with your roads, with your fences, I take care of all that. If some come up, I take care of my business, take care of all that as well. Cool. Yeah. That's so awesome. There's so much I want to unpack in what you yeah. said. There's like multiple parts. There's the part of like your spirit of who you are of, I mean, you very well could have been like, you know, this is terrible. I got wronged and, but something in you, you had hope, you had hope and you yes. never gave up. And that's, that's what uh, Judge Stanford actually said about you, right? Is yes. an example of hope. Yes, he, um, he was, uh, yes, the example of hope and prison saved my life. I tried to stop selling drugs myself probably two or about three times. I was not able, you know, it's, it's like an addiction. You get yeah. from, you get acquainted with the money. And so prison saved my life. I'm, I'm sure of that. 
I'm, I'm 100% sure I would not be here today had I not been in prison. So I'm grateful to God that he allowed me to have prison before death, you know, to give yeah. me a chance to get my life together. And so I want to always try to pay back to society by doing things in prison to help others. I would tell the young guys I, when I was on the street, my mother would be worried about me at night, whether she was going to get that call, I've been killed or, or this happened. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't want your mother to worry about that when you go back. So I would try to work with the young guys, try to help them to go out better than what they came in. You know, I never complained. No one has ever been seeing me locked up, ever heard me complain once, mm -hmm. you know, because I realized that I, what I did, I accept the responsibility that I was a drug dealer. Nobody forced me to do it. It ain't, it wasn't the fact that I received the life sentence. The point is when you get in that courtroom, you done something wrong, you got to be man enough to take the penalty that comes with that. And I was willing to take that penalty to what came with it. I made the best of it and God blessed me to come out to be a better person. Yeah. yeah. Do you have children? I don't, we didn't discuss yes, like family I, and children. So tell everyone you have a family and. Yes, I have eight children, eight children, five different mothers. You know, you in the, when you're in the drug game and you're young and you, you the ego and the arrogance yeah. that, that comes with that, you don't see marriage, you don't see responsibility, you just see, I'm out here enjoying this life. And so I, had, I was blessed to have eight children. My youngest son was born two months after I got locked up. He was born when I got locked up. My older twin sons, they were seven years old when I got locked up, but every one of them we stayed in communication and I have a beautiful relationship with my children. In fact, when I walked out of prison, that was my goal to get acquainted with my children. With They used to come see me, get acquainted with my children and set my business up. I wouldn't take a date from no women. I didn't deal with no woman. I would tell, I would tell everybody, I haven't been with a woman in 25 years. Y'all miss me with that. My children come first and send my business up. That was most important. It was not running, try to get with a woman and try to do that. And that was the, oh, those were my two goals. And uh, once I gave my children months, got my business going, then me and my daughter's mother and I, that she used to come see me a lot. That's who I ended up dating and we got married. Oh, wow. Yeah. And our anniversary was February the 13th that just passed. Oh, wow. Oh, that's beautiful. That's great. Happy yeah. anniversary. Yeah. Well, thank cool. you. There was an interesting thing too, when you back in 2010, where, you know, you thought like, okay, I'm going to be released based on the changes. I think it was 2010. And then you yeah, had yeah. this, you stayed in, you know, you obviously didn't get released and stayed until your final release. How many guys in that period of time, like, is there, is there one, I always look for like reasons why things happen in, in hindsight or retrospect. And I bet just knowing you a little bit is there's probably one or two or a whole handful of people that you touched in that period of time between 2010 that were significant. Like, oh, that's why. Yes. I, I, I wish I could show y'all the yeah. different, different text messages from Messenger, from text messages. So many brothers I share with my wife and my children. They always and they just constantly bombard me with messages saying, Brother Stick. You really done what you say you was going to do. Wow, man, you're so proud. Because they always heard me talk about getting out, doing my business, and doing this. And I was such a positive person that I'm grateful that I was. they, they was able to draw strength for me. Because I get so many messages now, and the young men that's out, 
they call me, they thank me, and they say, man, they tried that. One of them told me about a month ago, he said, I was trying to really, he called me and I haven't talked to him in over a year. And he said, I was trying to explain to some individuals about you. He said, it's hard to explain you to you. He said, because you that same person, you was never angry. We draw strength from you. You admonished us. One thing about me in the system, I was highly respected, but I didn't take sides with nobody incarcerated and I didn't take sides with staff. I'm gonna be a balanced person. Well, I don't take side because you was a black person. I didn't take side because you was a white person. I strive to do what's right. If my child is wrong and there's a white child is right, I'm gonna admonish my child and I'm not gonna take the sides because when you talk about justice and truth, it don't have a color, right. you know? I'll, that's the example I always strive to give since a young boy in the system. And, and only God could help me to be that way, you know, because I wasn't angry, I wasn't bitter. I was just grateful that I still had life. I was, I was grateful and, and I was very grateful to God. And when you're grateful to God, you don't sit around groping and mumbling and complaining. You know, you why are you in that situation? I learned in life, don't worry about the things that I don't have the ability to change. Worry about that, what you have the ability to change, and that's yourself. And so we can all say what we won't do in life. But if you don't prepare yourself and work on yourself and develop yourself, then we will fall victim back to what we say we will not do again. And I was not going to be that person. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I how, know. How did you, getting into your quality of life class, where you said self-analysis, self-examination, and self-correction, um, were, I guess, the kind of the keystones that, that you taught people. Did you, did you just come up with that yourself, invent that program and say, I want to start teaching, you know, these new guys coming in here? Like, how did that evolve? Well, uh, no, I didn't come up with that program myself. That program was a program that I went through of being in the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. And it was a program that forced us to deal with yourself. Stop blaming others. Right. Deal with yourself first and foremost. And that was the program, self-analysis, self-examination, self-correction. And I applied that to my life. It made me a man. You know, I, like I tell people, a male is different from a man. I say, you know, you have many males. I say, but a man's self-responsibility, a man stand on integrity, a man stand on truth. A man don't make excuses. And it was something that I never accepted from people because I don't make it. You strive to be the example. And I always want to be an example, like in society right now, I strive to be an example for others. They showed it. I wrote Jerry Stafford coming up to my first year of being out. And I wrote him and I say, George, I say, I, I shared with you that I will give you my update. I sent him where I had paid my taxes. I sent him and showed how much I had made the first year, which I can share I had made. My first year, I made over 200 some thousand. And I showed him. <laughs> And I showed him and I paid taxes and I thanked him again. And I said to Jerry Stafford, I said, I want to be a person that the system can look at and say, we gave him a chance. I say, everybody, somebody else deserve a chance. I can't say who it is, Judge. I say, but I'm a proven example that somebody else deserve a chance. I said, all you need is one to show the potential. I said, I strive to be that one. You know, I say, I want to thank you again. I say, you know, I was very defined. I apologize many times. I say, but I really thank you. 
I say, because you didn't have to do this. I say, I'm grateful to you. And I want to just thank you again. This is my one year anniversary of BNI. After that, Judge Stafford responded and he said, as long as Mr. Frazier continue on his path, I'm gonna do an early termination of a supervised release. And he ended up terminating my supervised release. Wow. Wow, that's so awesome. And I mean, I don't know how often this happens, but he was the sentencing judge wasn't he? Yes. And he's so the one, he the one, he's the one witnessed me cutting the food, talking noise, very defiant, lying to the court saying I didn't sell drugs and then told the judge back in 1995, you just a bigger part of the conspiracy as the government. You know, so he witnessed a person that was very crazy in that courtroom. And so he himself saw the change in me. Yeah. Wow. Full circle for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, the other part, we were talking just about who you are and your outlook of being hopeful and never giving up. But the other part for me was, is I've never been into really politics and looking at things and I didn't know any of this. And when I even just, you know, the little bit that I heard, I went home and I just started researching more about you and that. Mm -hmm. And I was, and I would said to Bruce, I was like, my gosh, this is so wrong. Like, this doesn't make sense. And I think that, you know, it's important too for that part. I think there's a lot of people don't, they don't really know what's going on. And I think it's important to know, like the whole process with that, I think is important. So I think for two parts of taking responsibility and doing that, but also just being aware of how, what the laws are and how it works and they need to be looked at to be done differently because of that's that's a pretty extreme to be life in prison for that. You well, know. I think it, it takes more voices like myself to come out, but first come out and try to raise your voice to at least make it aware. Not that we're saying that a person shouldn't be punished for his crime. If you do the crime, you should be punished, but make the punishment fit the crime. You know, my sentence was more than a person that murder someone, more than a person that destroyed life, which be a pedophile or rapist. I got more time than them. I sat in prison 25 years, but I didn't complain about it because I've told people like this. My life sentence to me was a package. Maybe if I would have had 10 years, I wouldn't have done death. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe if I would have had, but because I didn't have a date and there was no hope for me, I feel that I needed whatever God permitted me to get. Mm-hmm. And so it was a package. I can't say, God, I'm grateful for my growth and development, but the life sentence is kind of wrong. It was a package. I accepted it all. So, you know, me, but, uh, and I would always tell individuals, stop complaining. Because if you complain to him when you get in society and get comfortable, you're going to go to complaining again. That was something that I always stuck to. And uh, a lot of people don't come out and become, try to become a voice. They forget. I witnessed so many that would say, oh, I'm going to go home and do this. But they never raised their voice to anything. And we would just still sit there. And when I was turned down by President Obama for clemency, and I just knew I was getting clemency in 2016 because I qualified. It was six criteria you had to meet. I met every one of them exceedingly. And so I'm prepared to go home and literally I was told that I was going to be released. I went again all my material way. You know, I went again, my stuff went. That was the biggest shock I got. And when the case manager walked to the door and handed me my paper and said I was denied executive clemency, I screamed on him. He got scared. I, I say, what? He said, oh, Mr. Frazier, hold on, hold on. I'm just getting the paper. But it shocked me. 
That was the, one of the biggest, because like, I was prepared to come home. Mm-hmm. And I was so angry. At that point that I got angry that I now wanted to challenge the system. And how did I do it? My anger didn't consume me where I did outbursts or try to overthrow the system. No, what I did was I said, okay, I'm not getting nowhere as an individual. I say, what I'm going to do, I matter of fact, I got to get credit where credit is due. Mr. Conker, he was an officer. He was a Caucasian officer. Me and him still communicate today. He told me, and he, they would always ice me. The staff member always was concerned about me. They said, man, ain't nothing for you. And Mr. Conker was one afraid don't give up. I said, Mr. Conker, ain't nothing I can do. I'm under the crack cocaine despair, but at least put something in. He was one telling me to put something in when the judge got ready to sentence me. I was defined and wouldn't do it. And he's the one who told me, go petition Congress. I said, what you mean, Mr. Conker? And this was 2016. He said, I know somebody that petitioned Congress. Go research it. I went to the legal library and I researched and that's when I came across the Native American tribes that when the government had laws that targeted them, they all came together as one unified force and petitioned Congress. And from that petitioning Congress, because they could show that the laws targeted them as a people, the Indian Claim Commission Act came about in 1948. So when I saw that, I went all the way back to a 1905 case, a Moore case. And I went there and I that's when I uh, went to see SIS. SIS is a special investigative unit in the institution. And I talked to them and I told them, look, I say, I can petition Congress as an individual or I can petition Congress as a collective body. I say, as of right now, I'm gonna use this case. I wanna show y'all because I don't want y'all to come after me uh, because I want to give you heads up of what I'm about to do. I say, everybody under the crack cocaine dis- disparity is my co-defendants now. And they say, what you mean? And I showed them. They say, that's what it say. I say, so I'm showing this because I'm going to be in all the federal prisons with an email asking brothers and sisters to join me. I was the injured party. And I asked them to join me by saying, because the government can't smear me. I don't have a record prior to coming in prison. And I have an outstanding record while I'm in prison. I say, so no matter what your case is, you got to come through me first. I say, y'all are the co-injured party. So a lot of them were saying, some of the guys at the prison said, man, I was afraid they're going to classify you as a political prisoner. I say, brother, I'm already a political prisoner. They just haven't announced it. If you say I'm going to die in here now, I'm going to give you hell dying. I say, either you're going to let me out or you're going to put me in ADH. But I'm going to use my pen and paper and my voice. I will not sit quiet. It is no longer. And I began petitioning Congress and brothers, they thousands joined me. And I was throughout the system sending emails and thousands joined me. And I was sending to, I sent to hundreds of congressmen, senators. I was sending all type of organizations. And then they did, they went to doing interviews and stories. And I was starting to rattle and make noise. And I didn't sit quiet. And so when I walked out, that's the first thing I did when they put a camera in my face at, at the prison, United States Penitentiary Atlanta. I brought up the crack cocaine disparity, went to talk about me petitioning. And next thing I knew, I got a letter, probably had been out about two or three weeks. The prosecutor said, we peeling your case to put you back in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and I still wouldn't stop talking. I said, if God means for me to go back 
because I didn't got out here and making noise, you talking about gonna make noise if I go back. So I said, if I go back, I go back. I said, but I'm not gonna stop talking about this. And I kept going and I, by the grace of God, I won the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And after I won, the cases went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled in our favor also and thousands more was released at that point. Wow. So they didn't like you very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they didn't have no way to say, well, he's a threat to the community. You can't say yeah. that because I'm not a drug yeah. dealer no more. I haven't so, done anything anyone. What What is the motivation? I mean, I think I know a little bit, but what is the motivation to say, well, we're going to appeal your case and put you back, you know, try to get you back in? They was They was trying to say that, it should have been based on my conduct, not my uh, statute, not my indictment. When we was indicted back in in 86 on all the way to 2000, they never put drug quantity as an element of the offense in the indictment. Uh -huh. When we got the sentence and the judge would get the sentence and then say, okay, we're going to hold you accountable for 20 keys of crack cocaine. And none of this was ever brought to the jury or none of this was ever in the trial like that. And what happened was, because I was indicted on a statute 21 USC 841, that's B1A, that means 50 grams or more crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. Or more mean that that number could be anything. As they want. But so when this when the 18 to 1 came, what President, President Trump made President Obama law re, uh, retroactive, that 50 grams or more was no longer 10 to life. It was five years to 40 years. Mm -hmm. So what the prosecutors was arguing, say, oh, no, 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 no. We got to go by the conduct. The conduct said that we held Mr. Frazier accountable for 25 keys of crack at sentencing. But that's the conduct you had. So the appeals court and the Supreme Court say, no, you got to go by the statute. The statute said 50 grams or more. So the prosecutor was trying to say, well, if, we, if the law would have been that, we would have said 280 grams or more. So he was trying to go in the future saying what they would have said. So they say, no, you can't do that. We got to go by yeah. what was in the statute. And that's what, so they ruled that the statute over Trump conduct. And the government was trying to hold us accountable for conduct when the courts ruled that the statute Based had Based on changed. statute, yeah. Yes. Why wouldn't they want to get empty the prisons? I mean, what, you know, I mean, if it's, there's people um, in there. Prison is, not, prison is not set, reform anybody, rehabilitate anyone. Prison is more like warehouses now. They actually warehouse you. Uh, once they remove federal parole, there's a great input, but no outlet. In the system, there is no rehabilitation. A person has to rehabilitate himself. There is no system that set to rehabilitate you. It's a warehouse. And that's what prisons are for. You have prisons. President Clinton, the crime bill that came about it was over 50, more than 50 federal prison came about since President Clinton was in yeah. office. These prison was still, they was coming up under President Clinton. So these prisons, if you build all these prisons, that means you under the calculation that somebody going to fill these prisons up. Yeah, I was looking at the graphs on that and it was like pretty normal. And then as soon as Reagan got in, it started to tick up and then it really yeah. took off. And then back in that, in that 90s, yeah. it was like, boom. Yes, uh, the boom, the, the, it was, Prior to 1986, the federal system, I don't believe, had 20,000. It yeah. might have been. 20, I think it was. It was below 50, okay. for sure. In the 90s, it went to hitting in the hundreds. Yeah. By 2000, it was near about 180,000. So the inflows and what brought it was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Mm -hmm. 
1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act that abolished federal parole. So once they established that, the prison was not for rehabilitation, they was for warehousing that. Yeah, and this is one I, I know just a little bit about, but the privatizing of prisons. Like yes. that, I mean, that's big business. So it's a billion dollar yeah. industry. Yes, big business. You have all, uh, I used to work in there, it's called Unicor. And Unicor is where we was making the military, give a good example. In United States Penitentiary, Atlanta, Georgia in the 90s, I was making camouflage pants. You know, we make them from scratch with all the material, making camouflage pants, then they were doing mail bags and they was making mattresses that you lay on. We had one area that make mattresses. I'm going to say 1999, I went to South Carolina. I was making army jackets, army jackets, Air Force shirts, Navy shirts. When I left there in 2002, I went to United States Penitentiary, Lee County, Virginia. I was making army jackets then, army jackets, and they was making other materials as well. And you, you make some clothes. Now they make, they make parts for military equipment. They make all type of stuff. It's a multi-billion dollar business, multi-billion yeah. dollar business. You, you got cheap labor. I was making a dollar, the highest you could make a dollar 15 cent an hour. Mm -hmm. That's what I was making an hour when I was literally learning how to sew and everything, make clothes. I learned how to make shirts and all. And so it's, it's cheap labor. And that's what it's based on now. I heard, I don't know, you know how true that it is, but one of the biggest lobbies for opposing legalizing marijuana is tied to the privatized prisons. I don't know if that's true. I don't even know if we can check that. But like, if you look at like how much money a company would make off of an, an inmate, yes. why would you want to get rid of that business stream? You, you wouldn't want, they wouldn't want to get rid of it. If you do a, a regular college degree, you can get a regular college degree, four-year college degree, just a simple college degree from the $20,000, a four-year degree. Okay. It takes, Thirty to forty thousand dollars to house each person in the federal system a year. Wow. So you more you more profitable to be in the prison system than you are to go to school. Yeah. Right. And so it's not by coincidence; it's by design. In fact, in California, it's up to fifty thousand dollars to house an inmate for one year. So it's not. This is not by no coincidence. It's by design of how it's set up. And established. And when you look at it, when you start digging around in it, you start to see like, oh, I understand. This isn't a black and white thing as far as being, you know, clear cut. It's yeah. There's so many different benefits yeah. that that people would get to do this. In, in society, they so tied down with their own life, whether they're struggling or whatever, that they don't have time to focus on what's going on behind them walls. Yeah. They don't have time to try to say, well, what this law is. Mm -hmm. That's not even on their agenda. I think and another so once you get in there and get behind those walls. It's like, excuse my language, the Roach Motel. You check in, but you ain't checking out. <laughs> yeah, I think probably by design too. It almost seems yeah, like yeah. even when you watch the news or, you know, you watch the, all this stuff on on the Ukraine right now, but our border to the north and south is in yeah. virtual yeah. chaos and it's like hey keep keep watching over here but don't pay any that's attention it. to the real stuff that's it it's like a it's like a magician throw 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 something there you you over there all the time but right here in the midst is you missing everything that's really going on amongst you yeah. yeah so how do you think about today like just let's say you know at that 
at-risk age, you know, that early teens getting into middle teens to adulthood. What's your advice for people? Like to, you know, some people say, well, go to school or stay away from the internet, whatever it is. What do you think about where we're going in terms of producing healthier children and turning into adults? Social media, when I went in, I have a joking term that I say, when I went in, I went in with uh, Sanford and Son. When I come out, I come out with the Jetsons. <laughs> Everything is so advanced, this technology. See, technology, it has its benefit, but it also has its down. And right now, social media and the technology, it has practically spoiled and ruined our young people. You know, how I growed up as a young child, children don't even experience that today. You know, you have different types of games that's made where you got children playing games where they're doing robberies. They, and, and that's condition. A child's mind is still somewhat pliant. So if you can put a vision or an idea in his head, it's no different than language. When you hear even rap or you hear this, people try to emulate what they see and what they hear. Because if you don't have a vision, somebody will give you a vision, yeah. you know, and, and that's, what's, that's what the children are missing today. They being guided and being guided by what they are associating themselves with on social media or uh, what they're associating themselves with, with the circumstances in their life that's a really surround them. So it's almost like you hot number. Community or the streets have more influence than you can ever have because of the circumstances that people are having to endure. Children are actually being conducive to their environment. And their environment is guiding and shaping them by what they see and what they hear. So it's almost, practically, if you don't separate your child from what they actually can watch and see, you, you practically don't have a chance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I know growing up, when did you graduate from high school? Like, what was your... <laughs> 1986. Okay. So I was 87. Yes. Um, and, and that time, you know, you had, there was glorification around like Scarface and, you yeah. know, Miami Vice and, you know, kids having raging keg mm -hmm. parties and, you know, all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff, which, you know, we, that's how we grew up in high school. And it was, it was almost glorified at that yeah. point, you know, it was what you could get away with, but it was still kind of fun ish yes. and then now it's i don't i don't even know what to think now like what's well, I, I, I would look at it like a lot of times with us back in them days we would do things more privately now the children there's no shame in it so it's like god say what's done in the dark i bring it to the light yeah so now what we here to do in the dark the children that they, they don't have no shame they do it in the open just it's a different day and a different time you know with me even coming out I had to adjust to a whole lot coming out not that I couldn't function but just the technology and then to the people the people are so divided and it's so much that I'm looking at like wow we got a long belt in prison than people out here we had more unity in prison right than people in society it's a big difference. In in prison, a person look at prison like if they haven't been there, they'll look at, oh, he locked. What goes on in society goes on in prison too. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Everything. You got corrupt officers. You got officers that people sell drugs in prison. People have 
girlfriends in prison or, or boyfriends. You know, that same thing goes on. You drink, you make wine in prison. You know, they get killed in prison because just smaller scale of what goes on in there is the same thing that goes on out here. You yeah. know, you just don't have as, as open while you're in there. You got more control. You're on the more control than in society. Yeah, and I guess when you get in there, if that's the case and there's no redirection, of course, the recidivism would be high. And, and, and it, it is. I believe uh, within the first three years, recidivism is nearly 70% of somebody violating or going back within the first three years of a person's incarceration or getting out of being released from prison. Because it's, it's, yeah. the web is not designed to rehabilitate. Right. You have to choose to do that yourself. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It goes back to you had to do that yourself. And so yeah. when, when you glorify things like that, um, like I just spoke about, and then you add to it one to a hundred change in from cocaine to crack cocaine, you have mm-hmm. a huge funnel. And of course, we're in this situation that we're in there now. It's crazy. Now, when you like, I never even thought of this other than, you know, I know that how addictive all that kind of stuff from my standpoint. And I look at the opioid crisis now, yeah. which yes. I find ironic on both accounts is that this is stuff that pharmaceutical industry is responsible for putting this stuff out there into, into yes. our yes. public and we're penalizing people and, for it. And that, yes. And now let me show you the difference with those two terms. With crack cocaine, they called it the war on drugs. But with the open art crisis, they call it a health crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're different lane. Health crisis meaning we ain't just going to lock you up like this. But with the war on drugs, with us, they just went to war on drugs and incarcerated us. A big thing that came out to expose, that was another reason they had to come forward. You know, Congress, for instance, Congress been saying for the last 15 years that the crack cocaine target African-Americans and they won't right their wrong. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. something when you are a lawmaker and you won't right your wrong. Mm-hmm. You keep putting a band-aid on it. Right. Why don't you make it one-to-one? And you got others that will walk out of federal prison. Yeah. They choose yeah. not to right their wrong, but you want, they hold themselves in a higher standard. And you won't right your wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same thing. And now here we are with fentanyl. Yes. How many, yes. How many people is that killing all year long and they're young kids? Uh, thousands thousands upon thousands yeah it's crazy yeah sure is it's just so fascinating and you know the the thing with this too is like renee said earlier is you're a product of a system where you said essentially justice is blind Mm -hmm. but it it isn't real like it it wasn't necessarily set up that way in your case and then you made it to where now yeah, justice is blind because you came out and you looked at, like you said, the whole package, like I, yes. I'm thankful for it because yes. it changed me and it, and it made me into a man instead of a male. Yes, definitely. And, I mean, it's, and you advocate that it should, we should, our society should be blind, but you went through all of this stuff yes. because it wasn't. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me that you, that you come up with that. You know, and I, I tell people, Oh, you can tell I wasn't bitter because if I was bitter, I couldn't uh, develop myself because that's an impediment. You know, you can't sit around and 
be envy, jealous, hate, greed, arrogance, pride. These are impediments that impede a person's development, development and growth. And so none of that was a part of me. You know, I looked at it as that's how I can try to pay back, try to help someone else. I wish the system more in the system was would try to be like I was an example because it wouldn't be a system any longer. But we know that's not going to happen. Right. All I can do is if you can get one, change one is like you got the world. So I just still go after that one. Right. And then down the line, he might choose to better his life or something. I'm grateful. You know, I, I don't find time to complain. And when people ask me, they say, how you doing? I say, I'm out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> Every day is good. See, see yeah. I went angry when I say I wasn't angry when I was in prison. So imagine me, God bless me to be in society. I'm out of prison. How do you yeah. think I'm doing? I'm grateful. I was grateful now because I had life. Now I'm out here in this society. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think just listening to your timeline and when you were working with people in quality of life class, did you build up somewhat of a platform there that was ready to be accessed when you decided to not be a single person and create a, a class action? Was that helpful for you to have that behind you where you knew other people and not that you didn't know other people for 25 years, but you know what I'm saying? Like, did that help you build a platform to, to enlist other people getting involved in that? Yeah, it was, you know, my determination and really my faith in God. I'm not worried about what someone could try to do to me or what you feel you could do to me because I'm going to voice that and use pen and paper because that's how I got in prison with indictment, pen and paper. Nobody didn't fuss with me saying, oh, we're going to lock you. No, they put it on indictment. So I learned in life, put it on paper. Put it, use a pen and paper and do the same thing. So, you know, I learned how to actually use my voice and not with emotional outbursts, but talk in the most respectful manner and use pen and paper and then solicit others to join me. But before I make those moves, I go to the legal, the right channels and say, okay, I don't want you to classify me as this. This is what I'm about to do. And then I get their approval because I'm going to do it anyway. Because it's right to do it. You know, only thing, like I told them, you could do is really just send me the ADX. That's what y'all want to do. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not telling people to overthrow the system. All I'm saying is bring awareness to what's going on. It definitely had that platform. And I don't worry about what the possibility of what could happen. You know, God is the author over there. If something's going to happen to you, then if he permitted, then it's going to happen. As long as you're striving to do what's right, and I strive to do what's right, and use my voice as much as I could. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I just, I love it, and I think that your story goes to show that everybody, their voice matters. And sometimes yeah. I feel like people think like it's just, it's just me. Can I really make a difference? And I think you're a great example to show people, like, yeah, actually, you can make a really big difference with your voice and who you are and going out there just because just like you were saying of all of these young men who have messaged you and how you've touched them by you being you, by the choices that you are choosing to make. Listen, this is something I used to share with my children when they came to see me and my wife now, because she's my daughter's mother. And I would share with them. I say, it's never where you're at. I say, everybody want to, like I'm from the little small town, Camilla, Georgia. And I say, everybody want to run to these big cities. I say, but I'm going to take and make a business in that little small town and make it a million dollar business. 
And I told my children the other day, I said, I have a million dollar business now. They say, Dad, you said that. that. I said, you say, I say, God helped me to show y'all. I didn't just tell you, because my sons told me, they say, Pop, we used to be like, man, how you gonna do that? And we out here like that. And they literally used to laugh at Chris and Dad, you know, you got big drink. And now they see that I literally have a million dollar business. Right. Yeah. I love it. I love and, it. And, and so it's show them the possibility. Never lose hope. Never lose hope in yourself. Keep that drive going. Whether anybody believe in you or not, you believe in yourself first and foremost. And others will jump on after they see your success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be the example. Yeah. 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 So, step seems like that's your personality. Like prior to, you know, you getting in trouble young, did you aspire to that? Like, I want to kick butt. I want to have a big business. And well, prior to me being incarcerated, hell what the police said, the agent said about me when they got me. They considered me a person. They said like Robin Hood. I did a lot for families. I always took care of people, not just my family. I did so much. I did so much that they knew they couldn't convict me in the area I was in. Because even though I was a drug dealer, I was not the drug dealer going around shooting people, going around doing this. I was selling drugs with destroy life. But I did so much for people. And I had that generous heart back then. But I was doing things illegal. Okay, today I do it legal and I'm doing the same thing. In fact, I was doing it in prison. And I, and yeah, I, was, right. doing, I was doing the same thing. So that's been my childhood. That's been my life. I just chose to stray away when I went to selling drugs. But the character of me as a young person was there. I just had the little tainted of going in the drug business and running around with so many women. All that needed to be polished up with me. And prison helped me to polish that up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why you going back into the communities now and just showing showing the young men another way. And I recently listened to a podcast with Hawk Newsom, who's very much into rebuilding the black community. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know much about him unless you watch like the legacy media, which you don't get a yes. clear picture of who he is. But he said, when I listened to it, I wrote it down. I was like, oh my gosh, like, yes. And he had said, I want to go into one hood at a time, creating healing centers in the spirit of empowerment. And, yes. I, and it's like, yeah, that's kind of like what you're saying. And I think that yeah. like voices like yours and like Hawk wanting to go in and let the young men know and young children know, like you had natural abilities and it just wasn't channeled in the right way. Cause maybe you didn't have the right mentor yeah, or somebody, vehicle. yeah, the wrong vehicle to do that. And I think it's wonderful now that you can go out there and say, here's another way, here's a vehicle yeah. and this is how you can be. Yes. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Definitely. Definitely. You know, um, all they need is to see hope, see, see example in front of them. You know, words amount to nothing if it's not followed by actions. Mm-hmm. Actions are unspoken words. So, you know, I don't run around saying this. Like when I even do certain things of contributing to people, funerals or helping families, I always tell them don't mention my name. Don't, I don't want, they don't have to talk about it. Don't, you know, I'm doing this. I don't, you don't have to share this with no one. This is between me, you and God. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, so, and because and word actions are unspoken words. That's what I live by. You know, be an example. Be the, be the example that you want to bring. Be the change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to see a change? Be the, be the example to be the, be the first one to change to that, to that status. Yeah. Good job. 
sure. You are extraordinary. You really are. I mean, I knew, I didn't know the whole story, but I knew there was an extraordinary story and extraordinary man that you are. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, you know, all the disparity, all that is, you know, the things that need to be addressed. But I think the, the theme of it is one that people are searching for. And it's why we do our podcast, really. Yeah. What the inspiration was, was there's ordinary people that have extraordinary stories. And most people don't realize that they're the person that we're talking about. Like everyone is extraordinary on some level. And yes, certainly, you certainly are in there. You are an example of it doesn't matter how bad or difficult or challenging it gets, you can literally do whatever you want, which That's is right. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I say, let's, let's, you have anything else? I was the podcast. I, I can go for like three more hours, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to go out to lunch or dinner or something yeah. and continue it. But yeah, I agree. Let's, All right. We'll go to our first question that we always ask our guests on the podcast. And it's, if you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? And what would you want to discuss? And this person could still be alive. They could have passed away, celebrity or anybody. It will be my mom. Mm. I got to see my mom literally three times prior to her passing in 2002, October the 17th. And it was a shock. And I, it will be to get that chance to see my mom because she grieved herself to death because I couldn't come home. You know, she was, it was taking her down and it would be to have that one dinner with my mom. Yeah. I'm sure for her to be able to see you who you are right now. Yes, ma'am. She's smiling. Yeah. 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 Here's the next question is what continues to give you or restores your faith in humanity? That as long as you can see one person that's but he that individual shows the potential in every human being you know you just strive to be that light that you want to see and as long as you strive to be that light somebody you you catch an attention because somebody's always watching you uh you never give up hope in hu human beings because hope was not given up in me i hope and pray to god that i change lives as people continue to watch me, um, that's, that's all you can do is just never give up hope on individuals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. The last question is uh, what still amazes you? What still amazes me? <laughs> God let me out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, home, I'm home. And, um, even when I try to tell people that president Trump, that's all he did it. I'm not saying why he did it. I'm saying he done it though. Right. They, one thing about President Trump, I say, I don't get caught up in the politics. I say, he didn't say what he was going to do for the prison system. I say, you have other candidates that said what they would do. They didn't do it. I say, he didn't say what he was going to do, but he done it. Mm -hmm. I say, so that's what matters. You want to find an excuse where, Oh, he a racist. I say, well, one thing about it, they didn't go to talk about President Trump was a racist till he got in the White House and got to run. And I say, but the media is, like he say, fake news. They gonna control everything. They condition people's mind to believe what they want to believe. You know, and you gonna fall right for it. Me, I'm grateful to God. So I'm making it clear on why I'm grateful to God and who he had to be in there to free me. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so that, I'm still amazed that people still don't want to accept. Even when you bring it and you telling them, they still want to make excuses. Yeah. 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 I love yeah. it. I, it's, it's just amazing. You're amazing. And you continue to restore hope in humanity. Like your story, who you are, uh, you faced obstacle after obstacle and you're sitting here smiling. You got yes. you, a sparkle, you know, a light coming out of your <laughs> eyes. I love that. We need more and more of that. So yeah. I thank you. Absolutely. I thank, I thank y'all for this time and opportunity. Yeah. Well, it, was, it was great to spend that time with you. We look forward to some more with you. Anytime. You can call me anytime and I'm here. Right on. Awesome. Thanks everybody for listening. This is Bruce and Renee with We Are Still Here. You can find us on Instagram at rbstillhere. And if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, because we love interesting stories, please email us at rbstillhere at gmail.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, all those regular normal spots that you would look for them at. Thanks again. And please share with your family and friends. Thanks for listening, everybody.